It's In Your Head with Lee Richardson, and thanks for joining me today. I've got a dynamic duo. I've got Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. And let me tell you a little bit about Brian. He's a U.S. Navy veteran. He was a Park Leadership Fellow. He's a former submarine officer. He has a psychology degree from Vanderbilt and a master's in business from Cornell University. And he's written some books. He's written three critically acclaimed high-tech thrillers, Reset, The Infloration Game, and Eclipso Directive. And Jeff, Jeff has worked as an actor, a firefighter, a paramedic, a jet pilot, a diving instructor, as well as vascular and trauma surgeon. He was in the U.S. Navy for 14 years and made multiple deployments as a combat surgeon with an East Coast-based SEAL team. And he is the author of three award-winning supernatural thrillers. And together, they have produced four books, uh, four different covert ops books, Tier One, Sons of War, The Shepherds, and Nick Foley. And I have to tell you guys, thank you both so much for joining me today. You've got such a, a broad background. And when I read the title, Nick Foley, that just, you know, I had to Google it and see what it was. And I see, okay, Nick's this ex-Navy SEAL. And he travels to China to find his purpose and escape the demons of the past. But it's not quite that simple. Now, is it, Brian? No, I think that uh, we all know that even if you try to run from your demons, uh, they they come along with you for the ride. So it's a never-ending battle for people to manage those demons. So, Jeff, I'm sure you faced your demons as well as everybody. We all have. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I think that one mistake that people make sometimes is trying to compare their their various life traumas with other people's and and that's not how it works and whichever side of the equation they fall on it's not healthy to do it that way you know what i mean like um your trauma is your trauma and your struggles are your struggles i've certainly had mine um you know dealing with things that i've seen seen and done downrange in in various war wartime settings but um you know my reality is no different than anyone else's and so we all have our own demons that we deal with and, you know, the ways in which we deal with them are remarkably similar, actually. Well, I find it really interesting that you guys independently each wrote three books and then you came together as a team and produced four more. What brought you together as a team? Well, that's kind of a fun, kind of a fun story, actually. Um, Brian and I were both writing independently and, um, and just to just to make it clear, it's actually not four books. It's actually four different series. So we've actually written about a dozen books together at this point uh, with Thank you. another dozen Thank you or so clarifying. contracted over the coming year. Um, but Brian and I were both debut authors, both thriller writers uh, as our next career. As, as you mentioned, we've both done a few things in the past. Um, and we met at an organization run by international thriller writers uh, called Thriller Fest, a meeting they have every year. We met there when we were both debut writers. And we just formed a tremendous friendship. And what we found was that we had a lot in common, um, partly just who we are and our personalities. You know, we're both very family-focused people, married, children about the same age. But as Navy veterans, we both sort of bring this uh, team aspect to everything we do in life. 
And that's something that's difficult to do in writing. It's a very lonely business. You sit in a room by yourself, away from your wife and kids, and pound on a on a computer. And it was actually Brian that had the idea that we might try to form a team and collaborate on a on a series of thrillers. Uh, and that's sort of how we how we got started. It was uh, an idea I resisted at first, to be honest, because it just didn't seem like you know I'd been writing a long time. I wasn't sure how that would work, but he wore me down as Brian is apt to do, and uh, the rest is history, I guess. So, Brian, tell us a little about how you made that happen. Was it persistence? Yeah, it was definitely persistence. But I think, uh, you know, what what Jeff explained is that both of us having this Navy veteran background, you know, what you learn in the military very quickly is that high-functioning teams uh, are effective because they collaborate, because they work together, because they take the best ideas from the group and then they implement it. You know, trying to row a boat by yourself is a lot more difficult than, you know, rowing a boat with eight other people, you know, pulling up the oars. And, you know, writing a novel, uh, like Jeff said, it, it can be a very lonely and frustrating activity. You have all these things in, inside that you want to get out on the page, the story you want to tell. But at the same time, you know, um, uh, there are days when, when you just stumble and you fall and you don't feel that creativity flowing or you might get writer's block. And, and uh, you know, I, I remember when Jeff and I got to know each other, we just had so much in common and we would swap stories from our Navy experience. And there seemed to be a lot of parallels, even though we were in different communities, a lot of parallels between uh, the sort of challenges that we had faced and the types of people that we had worked with. And it just seemed to me a natural fit to, try to bring those stories together and use this idea of collaboration and sort of call, call upon our experience um, in bring that to the writing genre. You see collaboration in Hollywood uh, with screenwriters uh, all the time. It's just not something that was really happening a whole lot in the thriller genre, and it seemed like a great opportunity. And, um, you know, Jeff likes to tease and say that, you know, he was very resistant and, and the like. But uh, I think that, you know, he, he – he saw that pretty pretty early on that this could work, and so we started. We kind of came up with a little deal. Hey, let's let's just give this a try. We'll write uh, you know four or five chapters, and if it doesn't work, then we'll part company on this. No hard feelings. And uh, it was amazing how quickly, just several chapters into the book, we we felt this momentum, this partnership already taking root, and uh, we really never looked back after that. Well, you know, you mentioned, one of you mentioned in the beginning that you you both value the same things, your family men, and you have the, the military in your background. So I think having common values would make writing together and telling the story a lot easier. Oh, that's that's true for sure. I mean, you know, you got to approach the, the the project and the business aspect of writing you know, with a, as a cohesive team, as a, as a, you know, almost a single person, you have to have a unified vision of what it's going to look like creatively, what it's going to look like professionally, the business side of it. And that's definitely for all of us, you know, those decisions are informed by who we are at our core, what our ethos is, what our, you know, personal priorities are. And so Brian and I having that shared background, both professionally in the Navy, but also personally with a commitment to family. Um, was a huge, a huge driving force. There's no, no question about it. Um, and, and that's the key, I think, to our success. Not just that we creatively are on the same page, but that we're 
professionally on the same page on the business aspects of what we do. You know, we share a goal. We don't argue about stuff because we sort of have the same vision. It's no different than any other business, quite frankly. There's, you know, any other business that, that you would be in, owning a small business, being running a large corporation, you know, those people that you come in contact with, Lee, I mean, it's the same. you got to have a, a unified mindset. It's why people put a vision statement down, right? It's why people have an ethos for their companies to make sure everyone's on the same page. So I agree with you completely. That was a huge part of why this has worked. Well, I think writing, and I've written a book, it's a one book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On. But I found writing could be stressful. As one of you mentioned, you know, you go in, you sit in a room, and all of a sudden, nothing's coming out. So how did you transform that stress? Because in the books that you've written, certainly there's a lot of courage in those stories, and there's a huge amount of connection with the military. So how did you transform that stress into courage and connection into your books? Jeff? Well, you know, I would love to make us sound brilliant and talk about the strategy we use to do that. But to be honest, in our situation, based partly on the things that we've discussed already, those things just sort of happened very, very naturally. You know, we both were experienced writers. We both were experienced at being part of a team. And I think that while certainly we have worked out kinks over the last few years of writing together in terms of how we do it and the mechanics of it, those issues of, you know, of moving a project forward and um, getting the work done never really came up, never really needed discussion. Both have a tremendous work ethic, for one thing. Um, but to be honest, um, to make us maybe sound a little less impressive, but I don't care, it's really kind of fun. Like, the, what makes it work is it's so much fun. As you, know, as you said, you know, writing could be, you know, you sit in a room and you can get frustrated at times. We never feel that when we work together as a team. No matter what the stumbling block is, I can now have someone I can pick up the phone who's in the middle of this project with me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And instead of six hours of rumination or struggling or wringing my hands, it's a five-minute conversation where Brian says, oh, what about this? Did you think about this? And then I go, ooh, you know what? That makes me think of this, and the problem is solved. And so some of those creative things that you run into in writing that can just really slow you down just never happen for us. And it makes it so much fun. I mean, I got to admit, we do spend a little bit of time acting more like eighth graders than, uh, you know, middle-aged professionals, um, giggling about what we're doing and laughing and having a good time. It's a lot more enjoyable, but it's also a lot more productive to have a teammate that you're moving this project forward with. It just makes it so much easier. Well, you know, you make it sound like you guys are neighbors and live right next door to each other, but I don't think that's <laughs> the case, is it? No, 800 miles at least apart. He's in Kansas and I'm down in Florida. So uh, to be honest, the, the friendship part of that probably makes that a good thing. If we were in the same place and hanging out in the same room, I don't think we would get as much work done. So it might be good that there's a little separation. <laughs> too much play if you guys were too close together, huh? That's it. Well, you know, talk to me a little bit because what really made me connect with you guys is resilience. And that's something that I personally have put a lot of thought into and have developed a program uh, around resi resilience because when the tough get going, the tough got to keep getting up off the floor over and over and over. And when I think about the resilience, I, th I think about the seven C's, you know, competence and confidence and connection and character 
and contribution and coping and control. Do any of those C's resonate with you when you, when you think about writing, at, whether it's Nick Foley or Tier One or Fade to Black or Reset? Do any of those seven C's hop out? Oh, I think for sure. And, um, you know, when you are crafting a character, you know, why you, you have to ask yourself, why does anybody want to read this book? Why do people love novels and stories? You know, uh, some of them have spanned, you know, generations, uh, have inspired, you know, three, four generations. The heroes sort of transcend even modern culture and time. And I think when you trace that back to, you know, the reason why is, is character. You know, yes, these are characters, you know, small C on the, on the page, but they also have character, you know, large C. And um, that's what resonates with people. When people pick up a story about a hero, it's that resilience that you just mentioned at the beginning of the question. It's that resilience of that hero that they're looking for. That That's the inspiration that people want. You know, you think about Harry Potter, it's just a good example because, you know, a billion people have read the story and seen the movies, but this is a kid who, you know, you meet him, he's living under the stairs. They keep him in a basically a closet under the stairs, you know, and he rises up, you know, over the series to become this great, you know, selfless, powerful, you know, wizard. Now, that's fantasy, but, I mean, we all, that's not why people are reading it. They're reading it because the character is overcoming adversity. And so we try to incorporate all of those elements of resilience into our characters in every story that we write. In a series like Tier One, when you meet our main protagonist, John Dempsey, something really terrible happens to him and his team just to kick off the series. And it's only through his resilience and strength of character that he's able to persevere and carry on. And, you know, we're, we're working on the seventh book in that series right now. And uh, it's been a long road for him. You know, he's had to, he's had to shoulder the burden of this tragedy, uh, you know, over the course of this series. And that's something that our readers can relate to because like you said, the people that make in this world are the ones that don't give up, pick themselves up every time they get knocked down and carry on. So when you think about your experience, I mean, you both have certainly had the the military experience, but, oh, my gosh, you know, being in a submarine, that terrifies me. And doing vascular surgery, that terrifies me. But, you know, you've, ha- you've got this vast of experience. Do you pull from that, or do you go to that psychology degree from Vanderbilt, Brian? Where do you go for to get that? Content. Oh, I think that, you know, every every author, they you know, one of the sort of thumb rules that they tell you when you first start writing is write about what you know. And the reason uh, why is because those experiences are authentic. You're speaking about them uh, from a place of personal experience and, and emotion. And uh, that authenticity really is what readers are looking for on the page. So, yes, I mean, I think... It would be impossible to say uh, that as a writer, you don't dig deep into your well of interpersonal relationships and experiences, failures and successes. And it doesn't mean that I take every single scene, you know, as 
somehow rooted in a particular experience I had on the submarine or, uh, you know, some psychological element that I'm trying to exploit on the page. That's not necessarily it. It might be that, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, a difficult uh, situation uh, on on the submarine, maybe a, a stressful situation. I, I channel that the particulars of the, uh, I'm sorry, not the particulars, but I, I channel the generalities of it. And I could maybe transform and use that into a, a new setting with a maybe something that I haven't, you know, the de- the, the the conflict is is unique to these characters, but it's rooted in that interpersonal experience and the emotions that I felt at the time that that happened to me. Well, have you ever faced some fears by reliving that experience that maybe you hadn't faced before? I think you do a little bit of that as a writer, don't you? I mean, I think, I think that, you know, you talk about drawing on experiences and I think that, you know, Brian, you know, sort of, uh, explained the, the creative, uh, craft side of how we do that as writers very, very well. Um, but there's always a little bit of, uh, not just introspection, but, uh, real soul searching that goes on when you're, if you're going to write that way, you know, you have to sort of bear your soul at least to yourself. If you're going to have those experiences resonate on the page. So I think that, you know, when you're writing intense things like the sort of work that we do, it's absolutely inevitable if you're basing it on your personal experience that you're going to emotionally and psychologically experience those things again during that process. And um, I think that, you know, while it's not always pleasant, it's definitely not something to shy away from. I think that you can, well, for one thing, it's going to take your craft. It's going to take your, your writing and take it to a, a level that's, you know, something we all strive to achieve. It's going to resonate with a great amount of authority and realism. Um, but just from a personal standpoint, working through those issues of, you know, past things that you've experienced that were not pleasant through another character that you've created can be very therapeutic. I mean, it can, it can cause some intense emotions that maybe aren't pleasant, but that's not always a bad thing, right? Like, which is what you're talking about, re-experiencing these things, seeing them in a different light, seeing them through the eyes of a character, perhaps, in the, in the case of what we do for a living, um, can give you insight into how you are or sometimes are not dealing effectively with things that you've experienced in your past. Well, you know, you make a good point because a lot of us think of when we get, you know, when we get stressed out, we go into that fight or flight mode and that means that we shut down. But that's not always the case because that can also activate certain parts of the brain system and that helps us connect with other people. So I think that, you know, it's interesting to me, men and women tend to react to stress differently. A lot of times I can remember an office that I was in and it was, there were about 10 of us. And when it got stressful, the men would go into their office and the women, they would all go out to the, you know, the break room and, and talk and have a cup of coffee together. So it, when you're writing your books, do either of you tap more into the way a female would react or do you both? Oh, for, for sure. We actually, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot more work for a male to write a female and vice versa, I'm sure. But we have uh, committed ourselves to trying to write very realistic, strong female characters in pretty much, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying, I can't think of an example of a book we've done that doesn't have that. 
Um, tier one for sure has Elizabeth Grimes. Our new series has a new character, Whitney, that people will meet next year. The Nick Foley series had Dash. Um, pretty much every story that we write, we write men, women, we write children's POVs sometimes, which is very challenging. But I mean, you want to be able to reflect those characters, uh, all of those characters accurately. You know, it's a poor writer who writes a really great John Dempsey, but then Elizabeth Grimes is this flat two-dimensional character that destroys the entire narrative. So um, I can't think of a time we haven't done that, Brian, can you? No, no, and you're, you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, this goes back to the uh, idea that, you know, we're, we all have humanity inside of us. So um, we're not... We would never claim that we, you know, understand all the pressures of the different characters that we write and different genders. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, the one common thing we all have is our humanity. So, you know, you can look at the personality of these different characters and say, okay, can I, can I at least put myself in the shoes of what this female character would be feeling like if she was on a team, uh, you know, an all-male team, if she was the only female on this team, you know, what are some of the the stresses and emotions she would go to, how would she, uh, to your point, Lee, about, you know, she didn't have another woman to go into the coffee room and invent to. And she just had a bunch of guys that would rather just internalize their feelings on the matter and, and not talk about it. You know, how is she going to adapt to that situation? So just being aware, I think, of how different personality types and different genders handle stress and handle problems allows us to at least represent it on the page that it might not it might not resonate with everyone because every all people are different but it certainly will resonate with a lot of people well and with female characters and male characters i mean the coping skills are different the level of control and real life i'm i think is different so that's something that the fact that you approach those in the same way and maybe it goes back to those seven c's of resilience you know you look at those those factors and you approach them the same way i think adds a lot of value yeah i agree i agree with that completely and i think if you're if you're going to be writing these these types of characters and trying to put that realism in you need to go to the source you know you need to you know as men we certainly have women in our wives our our wives um our other friends people that we've worked with uh, we have children. We've been parents. We've been children ourselves. Like, um, I think that you need to be open to, you know, finding people that you trust to help you with that aspect of the writing. And then I think you also need to have uh, editors who can provide a variety of insights. You know, one of the things that makes us work, I think, is the fact that we have a fantastic developmental editor for the books we've done so far named Caitlin Alexander who brings a female perspective, a non-military perspective, because, you know, we're not writing these books just for people who have served. We want, in fact, most of our people probably have not, but they want to learn about it and they will enjoy that, that thrill and that experience. So having someone with an outside view that can say, hey, you know, you kind of missed the mark here, and I don't know about this part. You know, I'm telling you as a woman, that's probably not what she should do. you got to be open and you got to put your ego aside and be able to take some of that uh, that criticism and uh, constructive comments and help it use it to help you make these characters even more come to life. So is that hard to do? I mean, everybody's got an ego. We're all human. And I would think sometimes it's hard to 
put that that ego aside. It is for me. I think it is for everybody, but I think that that's another area where um, our military backgrounds help us. Um, you know, coming from the military where it is trained into you and then you use it from, in your experience to put mission before self, your unit before self, your country before self. It's not about you, nothing that you do. It's about the team. It's about the mission. It's about the priorities of your nation. And so you've had years of putting that ego aside in that way, which is something not completely unique to the military, but something that's very big in the military. So I think for us, maybe that is a little bit easier. And being co-authors, we also have had to put the ego aside. That's a big part of our formula for how we write these books is, no ego. You know, it's not Brian wrote this and I wrote that and, oh, I like his, but, you know, mine is better. At the end of a book, we don't know who wrote what because we're both involved in the entire process. So we have a lot of experience putting our ego aside because in the end, it's about the product, whatever your business is. That's what it should be. And ours, it's writing a compelling novel. We want the book to be the best darn book it can be. And the way we can do that is by putting our ego aside and listening to the people we trust. Well, I think you make a really good point, though. It's, if you come at it from a perspective that it's us before me, it's the team before the individual, that's, that's your infrastructure, and that's what you build off of, and that's where you get your strength. So I think that, that military background, I didn't really realize how important that was until I heard you verbalize it for me. Yeah, and I mean, it's not unique to us or to the military, obviously. People in, people in medicine, people in law enforcement, people running large corporations, the most successful people are always the people that can function as a team, like Brian was saying earlier, and who can do that by necessity. They're going to have to put a little bit of their ego aside. Now, it's not, it's not saying that you don't remain self-confident. It's not, not standing up for what you believe. It's, having enough check on your ego that you can see things from another point of view, consider it, and maybe not take that advice, but at least being open to it. Um, and that's where the, the ego part needs to be put aside, I think. Well, thank you for mentioning that that applies in corporations, too, because I've worked with CEOs, and, and honestly, they believe that their success is only as big as the success of their team. So whether you're writing about a military book or you're trying to run a corporation you're right it's gotta it's gotta what i say is come from the heart and appreciate where everybody is and what everybody brings to the table we've got a lot more to talk about i've got to learn a lot more about all these different characters so i want you guys over the break to think about individually what is a character that you actually have the most pride in creating and then maybe even why, and if that relates to something that you accomplished on a personal level or a family member did, that would make it even more interesting. So you guys think on that, and we'll be right back. Have you heard? 
The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. Even with all the research that's available to us, I still hear women ask if weightlifting will make them masculine. The truth is, rather than causing women to build bigger muscles, weight training generally creates a tighter physique. Doing weights properly and consistently will give you firmer legs, shapelier and sculpted arms, in addition to a flatter abdomen. When I am working with women clients, we always include weightlifting in our fitness program because instead of making them look bigger, we sculpt their body to make them look smaller and tighter. Men, on the other hand, have much more testosterone than women, and when men lift heavy weights, they actually grow larger and stronger. It's been said that women produce one-tenth of the amount of testosterone that men produce, so the effects of weight training are very different. Include weightlifting in your daily exercise and enjoy the results. I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome. We're back to In Your Head with Lee Richardson. And we've got some interesting stories to hear. I think Brian is going to start off and he's going to tell us about the character that he feels is the strongest or resonates with him the most. Brian, talk to us. Great question. And, uh, you know, we have our Tier 1 series is our longest running uh, sort of longitudinal series where you have the same cast of characters uh, that you meet in the first book. And it, uh, we have book six coming out here in September. So, you you know, the readers have really gotten to know uh, these characters and their relationships uh, to one another. The central character, however, that the series is sort of based around is a, is a Navy SEAL named John Dempsey. And of all the characters, he's probably had the most personal uh, trauma. He's also had some physical trauma too. So he carries around uh, a lot of emotional baggage. And this is a gentleman who has consistently put uh, country above self and team above self. Uh, if, if, if there's ever any question as to, you know, what the mission takes, he's always going to put his needs second and put the mission and, and the needs of his teammates in the country first. And that's sort of the hallmark characteristic of this, of this character. But uh, as we all know, you know, that sort of personal sacrifice can really take a toll. So it speaks to his, uh, his inner strength and his commitment and courage. I mean, really those, he, he embodies the three core values of the U S Navy honor 
courage and commitment. Um, and, and we weave that into his character. And those are the, those are the principles that he falls back on uh, in each and every novel as he faces adversity. So as he faces adversity, he's, he's got to experience some anxiety or some depression. He, he does. And those, that anxiety, and, and I would say for him, uh, part of it is, is, you know, I would say guilt is maybe a word that would resonate with him. He carries a certain amount of guilt uh, that he maybe didn't, uh, you know, that he always assumed that his family would understand and that his family would, would be okay being second uh, if the job came first. And, um, you know, as, as the series progresses, that that misconception of, of his, you know, has a personal, takes a personal toll. So he, he carries some guilt around that. He, he carries some guilt around maybe putting expectations on himself at a performance level that maybe would, would require him to be prescient or, have superhuman capabilities that no one would be expected to have, but he thinks to, to himself, you know, if I had only done this or I had only known this, you know, he, I think he maybe has a tendency sometimes to judge his own life or his own success uh, in hindsight. And this is something I think that all of us have a tendency to do, especially people who are, who are high performing or type A personalities. It's very easy to fall into this trap of saying, well, you know, if I had only, you know, done it differently, you know, and we have to always remember, I think, that that type of judgment, that type of self-critique is really born in hindsight. And if you, if you can divorce yourself from that outcome-influenced perception and say, well, okay, if I, if I could go back in time and I had the same information uh, that I did when I originally face the problem, would, would I have done anything differently? And I think, especially for people who are conscientious and not reacting with emotion, the answer is always going to be, yes, I, if I had had the same information, I would have made the same decision over again. And so why am I spending months or years beating myself up about something that, you know, I did the best I could at the time? Well, you know, you mentioned expectations, and in in my world, that's where I see people have the the most conflict. Is they set expectations that are either unrealistic, or they strive for perfection, and perfection is really hard to achieve in your day to day life. So that's something that I see people that I work with on a regular basis struggle with. So, Jeff, why don't you tell us about your character? Yeah, I mean it's. You know, especially in the context of talking about resiliency, it's hard for John Dempsey not to resonate, right? So uh, lucky Brian to go first and, and use that amazing character of resilience. Um, but, you know, we write a lot of characters like that in our books uh, that are resilient in different ways. And so I think a nice uh, counterpart to, uh, to Dempsey is his boss, the character that we write as the former CSO of the Tier 1 SEAL team and now – uh, in subsequent books, he leads this team ember, this covert operations team, and um, eventually becomes the director of national intelligence and even continues his career beyond that. But what's interesting to me about that character that, uh, and this isn't a character I created, it's one he and I, Brian and I created together, of course, um, 
is that his resiliency is measured in a very different way than than John's. You know, John Dempsey is exactly as as Brian has described him, and he actually uses some of this angst. You know, whether it's his survival guilt or his you know sense of loss or the trauma from losing teammates, his family. He uses that as rocket fuel to propel him to perform at an even higher level. Um, what's interesting about Kelso Jarvis is he's also a SEAL. You know, he, he came up through the SEAL ranks as an officer uh, and was in the Tier 1 SEAL for most of his career. So he certainly suffered those same losses, but he copes with them in a completely different way. It's much more clinical. It's somewhat more detached. Um, he's a real chameleon in his character. He is he has trained himself over years to be what the situation demands, and it's something that he's done with uh, a great amount of intentionality, um, which is compelling and something I'm jealous. Like, it would be neat to be able to be that, to be able to say, like Brian alluded to with Dempsey, you know, when we can remove our retrospection from it and have the confidence in ourselves, and it does require confidence as well as a great deal of psychological and emotional maturity and health to be able to look and honestly confidently say with the same information I would have done the same thing I, I hate that it turned out this way but it was the right decision based on what I had that's difficult to do and requires a lot of maturity um, Kelso Jarvis just is that guy innately and it's not to say he doesn't care it's not that he doesn't have relationships that are important to him he does but he has this ability to step outside of the emotional impact of the situation, evaluate it with almost computer-like clinical detachment and say, it's, he makes it like math. All of these numbers, we crunch them in, that's the answer we come to. It didn't work out, I have no problem with that. That was the right answer. The math problem only has one right answer, that was the right answer, and he moves on. And he doesn't propel himself with a lot of the motivation that Dempsey does. For him, it's just this belief that if he is diligent and he does the math, he will come up with a single best answer, maybe not an answer that gives him the outcome he wants, but it will be the best answer at all times and he has the confidence to do it. So he's a really interesting character because he's not like most of us are in real life. Like, I'm not that character at all. Like, I admire his ability to be like that. I'm, I'm maybe a little more like Dempsey. I carry things from my past, some losses that I've had that I still ruminate over and, and feel guilty about, um, when I know intellectually that's not appropriate, but not, not Kelso. He's, he's able to just clinically detach himself, crunch the numbers and say, yep, that's what the map said. Let's move on. So is that where he gets his confidence from? Is he has his formula that he can follow? Yeah, and it is, and it is a confidence, not an arrogance, right? Like when we write about these military characters, sometimes you can write a character that has an arrogance, and there's a place for that. You know, when you're in these situations that it is life and death for you and people that are close to you, confidence bordering on arrogance is required to be able to make the rapid fire decisions you have to to bring the outcome to its best possible conclusion. Um, but for Jarvis, it's not an arrogance at all. It's a confidence that his brain is finely tuned and that he can do the math and that he'll make everything available to himself. And when he makes mistakes, and he does make a few in the series, he doesn't beat himself up about it. Instead, his, his mindset is, okay, what can I learn from this so that moving forward next time I can make a better decision? He doesn't beat himself up because he's 
able to say, I was the right guy for this job. That doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but it means that I'm more likely to come up with the right answer than probably most people. I did the best I could, but what could I do, have done differently? And if his answer is, this is what I should have done differently, he accepts that, puts it into his database, and moves forward knowing that next time it will go better. Uh, that's, that's something you got to admire. Well, it is because, you know, I think we all can go into that analysis paralysis when we're trying to make a decision, and that certainly doesn't always get us where we need to go. You know, and I have a lot of people that will, when they're trying to make a quick decision, they'll list the pros and the cons. Um, they'll, they'll take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and put the positive on one side and the negative on the other. But in that rapid-fire decision-making mode, those might not be the best strategies to apply. No, that's exactly right. Those are good strategies in the right situation, trying to decide between two houses that you want to buy or, you know, a career change or whatever, and you've got that kind of time. Um, and the best decision maker is the person who knows that there are times when that's the best technique, but knows how to detach themselves from that when they don't, aren't going to have that kind of time. You know, in, in various careers I've had, whether it's being a, a pilot or, you know, a, a surgeon dealing with trauma or, you know, having the, the honor of deploying on direct action missions with a SEAL team, these are environments where a wrong decision is far less dangerous than no decision at all. And so you can never let yourself be paralyzed by indecision. You make a decision in the operating room, if it turns out to not have been the best decision, then you make the next decision to make it a better decision. But if you just stand there and, and wring your hands, that's the worst thing of all. And so the characters we write, they exist in those environments. They exist in those environments where they must immediately make a decision and then they need to adapt and overcome whatever happens as a result of that decision without ruminating, without looking back, without second-guessing themselves. And it's, it's something that people um, can be trained to do, but a large part of being really good at it is just innate. You either are that kind of person or you're not. Um, and the people that are, are more likely to gravitate into those types of careers that put them so put them in those situations. I suspect. Well, what I heard you say is, you know, a good decision now beats a great decision later. But you also have to understand the cost of a bad decision. You know, so that's yeah, something absolutely. that what a lot of people that I work with they overthink, they over, and and I, there are times that I overthink, and. With the books and the characters that you've written, do any of them get stuck in that analysis paralysis, overthinking? Anybody come to yeah, mind? Yeah, we have a – yeah, go ahead, Brian. I know exactly who uh, you're going to talk about. <laughs> well, uh, I, was, I was just going to say uh, I, I liked, you know, when I was listening to Jeff's answer, you know, a, a sort of a metaphor occurred to me, and I liked I like this idea that, you know, with Jarvis, like you said, with Jarvis, it's like if he's driving a vehicle, he's spending all his time looking out the windshield, right? He's, he's paying attention to what is on the road ahead of him. Whereas, you know, so many people, and some of our characters in our book, are probably looking in that rear view mirror too, too much of the time. And if you've got your eyes on the rear view mirror, you're, you're missing the hazards. You, you potentially might hit a pothole or run off the road. 
because you don't have your eyes on the road ahead. And so I think that's a simple metaphor that we can all maybe pay attention to in real life. You know, uh, if we're not really concentrating on the future, uh, we're going to miss stuff. We're going to, uh, you know, and, and maybe to your analysis paralysis example, you could say, well, you know, if you put uh, the if you put the destination in your GPS, then you can just, uh, you know, you know where you need to go. Now you can concentrate on the journey to get there, and you're not spending half your time looking at the map and taking your eyes off the off the prize because you're trying to navigate your way there. So, you know, maybe for, for your listeners, you know, this could be a nice metaphor to say, you know, when you set a goal, um, once you put that goal in your in your own personal GPS, you know, now you have something to focus on it and, and drive towards that goal. And don't second guess the route. I mean, you, you could take 15 different streets to get from point A to point B, but once you pick the route you're going to take, go ahead and commit to it. I'm not saying that if you are halfway on the journey and you hit a road close sign and you have to take a detour, okay, then take that detour. But don't second guess the, the, the route you originally set out on uh, to the detriment of trying to achieve that goal. Those are some words of wisdom that we can certainly apply and everybody can apply because I actually saw this on Harvard Health. It's one of my favorite websites. 80% of us are either lost in the past or worried about the future. And if we can stay, if we can stay present and be mindful, we're going to be a lot more effective in our everyday life, whether it's a military op or just trying to help our kid get in college or work on a relationship, all of those things are important. So yeah, let's bring this down. Let's bring this down, guys, and let's make it more human. Um, because when I think about, you know, the military guys, and, and my stepdad went to West Point and was in, was in the service and had a five-star. And when I think of, of him and the impact that that had on him, of course, I didn't know him until much later in his life. But he certainly he certainly paid a price for all of that. Do you explore that in any of your books, the the price that and you kind of touched on it with John. You know, you talked about the guilt that he had from his personal trauma and emotional baggage that he carried with it. But do you ever go into how that really impacts him? impacts him on the human side? Um, I think we, we do we do explore that in to the extent that it's possible in an action-based thriller, right? So we try to show those motivations. We try to do it mostly through um, exploring the relationships, the relationships, you know, outside the team, but even the relationships within the team and how that baggage can affect those people. Um, in some of our newer books, we're going to be able to get into that even even more, uh, including the Sons of Valor series. I've written a faith-based thriller called War Torn, where the entire book is designed to explore exactly that, the, the, the toll uh, that can uh, be taken not just on a soldier, but also on the soldier's, in this case, his wife, um, when he comes home with demons from decisions that he's made, in the context of that book um, being the impact it has on his on his Christian faith. Um, but I think that if you don't explore those questions 
to some degree in your books, then it's just kind of a B movie. You know what I mean? It's uh, yeah, it's fun to watch some action and to shoot them up if that's your kind of thing. But if you don't get into some of that, at least within the confines of how it drives an action thriller, then you're going to have a rather two-dimensional book that's not really going to, it might be enjoyable, but it's not going to really grab the reader and suck them in to this real-world life. So I do think that we do play with that stuff in all of our books, some more than others, uh, and it would be a mistake not to. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned faith because I think that that's a lot of times people I've worked with that have been through a trauma that's unexplainable for a lot of different reasons, but sometimes they feel like that they lose their faith. And that's something I always say, do you have a spiritual side? Can you tap into that spiritual side just a little bit? So I'm really happy to hear you mention that. Well, it's a, it's a huge part of, you know, what, what I've done, what Brian and I are doing moving forward with our, we have a faith-based action thriller series that we're excited about with Tyndale House coming out next year called The Shepherds. Um, but the book War Torn that I wrote, I'll be honest with you, you know, I'll go ahead and put my heart on my sleeve here. That was a book designed to help me sort through some things for myself. Those are questions that affected me very deeply. You know, I've, I've had a strong faith for basically my entire adult life. But during times uh, over, over the last decade and a half, two decades, there were times when I really felt separated from my faith from the, and from the support that that faith gave me because I just didn't really see, or if I did see, I couldn't appreciate how God had any role, you know, however you define God, what, what his role is in man's life. When you see some of the horrible things that you see in war or when you're asked to do some things that are in conflict with, you know, uh, some moral amb- ambiguity, it makes you say, well, why is this being allowed to happen? And when you start asking those questions, those why questions, you know, why would God, why did this happen? How can he, you are just setting yourself on a course of self-destruction because for one thing, you can't possibly answer those questions. And for another thing, they're the wrong questions to be asking to begin with. The, the important questions are, you know, not how did I get here or why am I here, but here I am, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this situation for my family? What am I going to do with what's happened to me to make my community better, to make my church better, to make my uh, friends better? How can I use this as a tool for good instead of uh, just, you know, ruminating on my on my shaken faith? And so I lead a men's military ministry for a large church in, in uh, southwest Florida, and all of these questions of faith sort of grew out of that experience uh, and inspired the book that I eventually wrote. But I think that it's, it's smart to not project your faith onto anybody, especially in, in, in your job, believe it, but to not explore the aspects of their faith and how they lean on that in times of difficulty is to cheat them out of uh, a potentially tremendous resource that they can use if they're able to find the answers to some of the questions that come up in those traumas. Well, you're right. And I will, t- I will say, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if you believe in God or Buddha or Allah, it's just important that you believe in the higher power because I can't, I can't transfer my beliefs on clients. And I don't think that that's what, that's not how I can help them the most. 
uh, I think that helping them tap into their spiritual side is how I can help them the most. So, Brian, has faith played a role in any of your writing? I have not uh, explored my faith or um, on the page to the extent that Jeff has uh, until we started working on this new series, the Shepherd series that Jeff mentioned. And uh, that's been a really uh, great journey so far. And um, I think um, we've got lots of – we're going to be tackling in that series a a lot of interesting conundrums that, you know, even if you're not living an action hero's life, these are the types of spirituality uh, questions that that any thinking mind and – Well, I think we all have questions on our mind, and I think it doesn't matter what age you are, what race you are. Life has gotten a lot more complicated in 2020 than it has for a while, and that's one thing that we're all looking for is we're we're looking for answers. So we've got just about three minutes left. Is there any, you've got books coming out in the future. You've got a lot of new stuff coming. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's a crazy few years coming up. Uh, you know, Brian was just talking about the Shepherd series, and I'll just quickly say one thing that I haven't said to Brian. You know, Brian, is we've been friends for a while. We've become best friends through the process of, of this partnership. And being able to write this faith-based thriller series has been so much fun to do with your best friend not just because of the the craft and the business and all the things we've talked about over this hour, but because of the conversations that we've gotten to have. And if, if it was by yourself or if it was, you know, with someone that you weren't, you know, as intimate as, as Brian and I are as friends, um, it wouldn't be as fun and exciting. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's been an exciting journey to explore those questions with someone that you respect intellectually, admire emotionally, uh, and can and can be intimate with, uh, but we got a lot of stuff coming out. One of them is that the Shepherd series. That is a new series. We have a three book deal from Tyndale House. That book, the first book in that series, the Shepherds, comes out uh, next fall, so fall of 2021. Um, the Tier One series rolls on. Book six comes out. That's our next release. It's collateral coming out uh, in sep- on September 1st of this year. Uh, and as part of that whole Tier 1 world, we currently have a series of novellas, the uh, first of which, uh, called Scars, was just released a month ago. Uh, and those are very short uh, little installments that look at the backstory of some of the favorite Tier 1 characters. And then Sons of Valor, which we've talked about a bit here, we're just beyond excited about. It's a spinoff series with a, a fan favorite, uh, Lieutenant Commander uh Redman, who we know as Chunk, and we're going to be spinning up the, the Tier 1 SEAL team again with some good SEAL team action. First book in that, that series, is, Sons of Valor, comes out a year awesome. almost from exactly if, today. If anybody, if anybody wants to follow you uh, online or social media, would they just Google Andrews and Wilson, or where would they look real quickly? Andrews-Wilson.com is our website, and all the information on all of our work is there. And so you'll keep the, I, I noticed you had a press section. You'll keep that updated with new release dates and everything that's going on. Thank you guys so much for, for joining me. I've really enjoyed and you've really helped me understand a little bit more about what resilience is. Thank you. 